Hi, this is Kerry Tennis. It's Thursday, August 20th, 2020, and uh, this is the Since You Asked podcast. Today, I'm going to answer the question, does COVID-19 change everything? Guy writes, dear Kerry, or woman, I don't know, guy or woman, person, person, writes, what do you think about COVID and Black Lives Matter in terms of historical perspective? I think the Black Death in the Middle Ages paved the way for the Renaissance. And uh, before I read my response, I just got to say, I have no idea. I mean, this is not the sort of thing that I uh, write about, because what I write about is how individuals can manage their own little tiny sphere, their own universe of feelings and assumptions in order to get through whatever crap is thrown at us by forces much larger than ourselves. But I want to say a couple of things to all my friends out there before I go on. One is, yes, um, Pat Schneider, my great mentor and the founder of the Amherst Writers and Artists Method, did pass away last week. And it's very sad and I miss her already and hope that uh, we can just all continue her work by leading these Amherst Writers and Artists Method workshops. And uh, on that, or as an aside, okay, so as you might know, I'm, I'm working on a book about our decision to leave America in 2015 and come to this little town in um, Italy in the Tuscan region called uh, Castiglione Fiorentino. And the book has been variously titled, you know, I started out with Stones into Spirit, and then, and then an agent said to me, but what's the payoff? And that sent me on a whole spin, and I was calling it the split second forever for a while because it became a treatise on the... Um, the way that a split-second decision can change not only your life, but lives for generations to come. And that's still a major theme in the book, but right now I'm just calling it the Stones of Le Santucci, a Tuscan miscellany. So it was my decision to write the column, and I'm writing the column, but it takes a full two days for me to write the column do the podcast, get all the technical stuff done. And so I'm falling behind in work on the book. And I'm thinking I may keep publishing something every Thursday. I think that would be great. But I might not always publish the column. And I've written so much material, fiction, poetry, and I don't find markets for it. And I don't publish it on my own site either because, I don't know, it just doesn't appeal to me. But I, what does appeal to me is reading it aloud. So for a few weeks, while I concentrate on finishing the Stones of Le Santucci book, I may publish every Thursday a piece of fiction or poem or and or, you know, just reading... Uh, reading pieces into the microphone for the podcast. And I think you'll enjoy it. You know, in the workshops we have, which have been 
solely online for the past three years. We write amazing stuff, and I actually would like, if possible, to bring in some of the writers in the workshop and ask them to also read their works because amazing work is being created in these workshops. And I don't know what it is about the literary marketplace, maybe just that it's hell, that it's so unattractive, unappealing, that the all the incentives are sort of absent, like the only way you can get your work published is to endure rejection after rejection. And some people are good at that, especially salespeople. I mean, people who can know that, okay, for every, every rejection just brings me closer to acceptance. I just, I just really can't rewire myself that way. For me, every rejection is a rejection, and it's a drag. <laughs> and, I, and so, you know, I just don't do it. And I've tried so hard in so many ways to rewire myself, you know, to, what, to hack myself, to come up with new habits. And I wrote that book, Finishing School, which is all about that, encountering the emotional barriers to, you know, more productive life and everything. But... The reason I wrote the book and came up with the method is that I am terrible at that stuff. And so I continue to be terrible about it. And at my age, I don't even hold out hope of, of fundamentally changing my attitude. So I just, you know, I loved all those great literary magazines in my literary uh, youth, I would say, my early life when I aspired to be a literary person. Um, but I have little to no hope now of publishing poetry in anything but the one magazine, which is a guiding light in the wilderness, which is the Sun magazine, which has published um, poetry by me as well as uh, prose. And I just, I love them and they have been really good to me. Um, and uh, I don't know, for some reason, I guess because I know them and like them, the rejection doesn't bother me at all. I think I have to know the people. I have to know them physically like their faces. I have to know them in order to feel that it's okay to send a piece and maybe you reject it, maybe you don't. So that's why it's been so useful to me to live in a literary center like San Francisco and meet people and that that's really what my career has been about has been about meeting people face to face getting to know them and then uh seeing through that what pieces might work for their um publication so anyway that's my idea um because really writing the column takes a lot of work in in indeed just writing a piece that actually addresses an issue is a lot of work. Whereas dreaming up a piece, a piece of fiction, um, for some reason, in these Amherst Writers and Artists workshops, we take a prompt and then go into a privileged dream state where material arises and it often comes into being more or less fully formed. That's the, the miracle of it, that uh, we seem to have an innate 
feel for the shape of a, a piece, a narrative. And uh, after time, I find that, um, you know, we're just bringing it to a close. It's like jamming. I mean, when you learn to jam musically and you're with other people, you can feel when it's coming together and it's coming to a close and you can communicate and you can make a piece that sounds like you knew where you were going and you really didn't. Okay, this is Kerry Tennyson. This is my Since You Asked column for Thursday, August 20th. 2020. That's 320s in a row. Anyway, it's headline, Does COVID-19 Change Everything? I.e., Oh my God, we're all going to die. Dear Carrie, what do you think about COVID and Black Lives Matter in terms of historical perspective? I think that the Black Death in the Middle Ages paved the way for the Renaissance. Uh, okay, <laughs> so I'm already out of my depth here. But the letter goes on, Actually, it was a very short letter, which was good. Is what we are going through, radical changes to social protocol, likely to result in a similar revolutionary change? And if so, would future historians regard this change as a good or bad thing? Signed, Just Wondering. Dear Just Wondering, pardon me while I hyperventilate into a paper bag. Seriously, you overestimate my abilities. In a nice way, I mean, but really, it hurts my brain. I mean, did the 1918 flu epidemic permanently alter civilization? Did Joe Strummer and Mick Jones ever find their way out of the supermarket? I don't know. I'm really not equipped to answer. I, I have to defer to others, like Jared Diamond. Here's what he says. You know, he's the guy that wrote that book, Guns... Uh, but guns, germs, and steel, or something like that. Um, here's what he says in his May 2020 piece in the Financial Times. Strange as it may seem, the successful resolution of the pandemic crisis may motivate us to deal with those bigger issues that we have until now balked at confronting. He says... Until the unprecedented danger posed by COVID-19, there has never been a struggle that united all peoples of the world against a widely acknowledged common enemy. So, that seems like a fairly optimistic look, and I can certainly send you to his book, um, Guns, Germs, and Steel, or am I... I'm doing this from memory, so please forgive me. And also to the uh, Financial Times, May 2020, you can search his name, uh, Jared Diamond Pandemic, that ought to do it. Um, but, okay, this is where I'm at. Enough about Jared Diamond. Let's talk about Boccaccio. This is his approach to unspeakable calamity. So the Black Death of 1348 visits Florence. People are dying everywhere. Everybody is miserable. The air stinks with the stench of death and medicine. So let's go up in the hills and tell each other body stories. That, I think, is the Boccaccio approach. And here, here's how he describes the uh, pandemic. 
All human wisdom and precautions were ineffectual against it, he writes. Even though much refuse was cleared out of the city by officials appointed for that purpose, all sick people were denied entry and instructions were distributed for the preservation of health. No medical advice or medicines seemed to be effective against this disease. Either there simply was no cure, or those ministering to the sick did not know the cause, and for that reason could not provide a remedy. Now I have to thank J.G. Nichols for this wonderful translation of the book uh, of Boccaccio's Medieval Italian, and send you to the um, Penguin Random House site where you can acquire this book, which I acquired and which made me very happy because the uh, Decameron is a wonderful collection of stories, just simply wonderful. And I would imagine that to read them in the back with the backdrop of our own contemporary pandemic would be one way to um, just have a little happiness in your life. So I'm going to read, and with grateful forbearance on the part of Penguin Random House, who um, I'm going to consider this uh, fair use for journalistic purposes, but um, I wasn't able to acquire... Um, literal permission and if it bothers them in any way I'll just take it down I guess but um, I hope that I can be in their good graces as among other things one of the authors of the publishing house but um, anyway I just feel I just feel that I, I believe that things ought to be done properly in the world of publishing and I probably should get permission but um uh, things things happen really fast here in the internet age. Okay, so just another couple of paragraphs from this wonderful J.G. Nichols translation of uh, Boccaccio's Decameron. Almost all tended to arrive at the same callous decision, which was to keep the sick and their belongings at a distance, believing that in this way they could save themselves. Then some there were who thought that a sober way of life was a good method of avoiding infection. So they gathered into groups and kept clear of everyone else, shutting themselves up in houses where no one was sick and where they could live comfortably, consuming choice food and wine in moderation, avoiding all excess, not speaking to anyone outside or hearing any news of the dead or sick, but enjoying music and what other pleasures they could muster. Others, drawn into a contrary opinion, declared that heavy drinking, pleasure-seeking, and going round singing and enjoying themselves, gratifying every urge and making mock of what was going on, was the best medicine for such a serious disease. And as far as possible, they took their own advice, drinking day and night to excess, going from inn to inn, or more often into people's houses, though only those where they heard what they wanted to hear. And these, of course, all the, are the people uh, whom we refer to as the uh, COVIDians. But they have a point. Um, they have a point. 
and <laughs> and I would only wish that it were possible for one to live as wanton a life as possible and and not kill other people in the process. And that's, of course, the problem. That is the problem. So on the question of how the pandemic may alter future history, there is one tiny thing that Boccaccio mentions in his um, preface to the stories that may serve in, in that way. Um, I should also say that I'm almost embarrassed to read this out loud because of the uh, accepted condition of women that it refers to, which is so opprobrious to our to our sense of what's right and just uh, for women. And I don't even like to say that, oh, women have come a long way, baby, <laughs> because it doesn't matter to a person who feels unfree or that the conditions of her life are unjust. It doesn't matter to her at all that the condition of her peers may have improved over the past thousand years, you know? And so I hesitate even to say that these conditions no longer persist. I just, um, I just note it here in Boccaccio's medieval text. And I would remind people also that the book I'm writing about our town is actually about uh, a convent and the rebuilding of the convent in large part. And so I've had to consider the reasons that convents existed in the social context they existed in. And um, I really can't find a good way to express it without seeming to condone it. The reality appears to be that convents um, served a, an economic purpose to a large degree because of family structure and land ownership. But I just, it's beyond me. It's like this question itself, you know. These are issues for historians and social scientists and, um, and not for me. So Boccaccio writes, then not only were the sick abandoned by their neighbors, relatives, and friends, not only were servants scarce, but there also grew up a custom hardly ever heard of previously. No lady, when she fell ill, however graceful, beautiful, or noble she was, minded being cared for by a man, even a young man, and shamelessly letting him see any part of her body, just as she might have done with a woman, simply because her illness demanded it. This may be the reason why those who survived were in future less chaste than they had been. And many also died who, had they been cared for, might well have survived. This lack of assistance for the sick and the sheer virulence of the plague meant that so many died in the city, both by day and night, that it was staggering just to hear of it, never mind, see it. So 
it was bound to happen that among the survivors, habits grew up which were contrary to their previous usage. So the letter writer asks, if I think that because of the pandemic, habits may grow up which are, quote, contrary to their previous usage. And I would say darn right. And I think that Jared Diamond, who is one of those people who actually knows stuff, would probably agree. So let me take a shot at it briefly. What sorts of habits in our age might grow up which are contrary to their previous usage? And I would say let's concentrate on the positive. What habits uh, might endure? So we Americans may finally learn to wear surgical masks to dampen the spread of other less fatal but still troublesome diseases such as the common cold. Not to mention that during flu season, in addition to getting um, you know, our vaccines, we could also wear surgical masks. It would probably help. And also, if we maintain the habit of frequent hand washing, that might cut down on the transmission of diseases and especially foodborne diseases, which we've had trouble with. Foodborne diseases that sometimes are transmitted by restaurant workers or food uh, preparation workers not taking care with their own hand hygiene. But, you know, but again, <laughs> I'm no expert. I really. So also, he, here's one. The tension between authority and individualism. In my view, this pandemic shows us that there are times in a free society when we would all do best by acting like we're cadets in the military. We're in basic training. We just take orders. To me, this shows that precise 100% adherence to a certain plan, the plan being to prevent the dissemination of the virus, that kind of mindset turns out to be a virtue in our highly diverse and individualistic culture. So there's something to think about, especially for a dyed-in-the-wool hippie like myself. But people who actually study and think about world events are the people to pay attention to in this time. I'll only say this, and this is the last line in the piece. Um, I do have a feeling that things are never going to be the same. Thanks. See you next week. It's been a lot of fun. Ever since I was a little kid, I just love talking into a microphone.